This Tailgate Society podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Deadeye Premium Barbecue Products. Born in Iowa and made in the heartland, Deadeye is your go-to source for everything barbecue. Sauces, seasonings, you name it. They've made a science out of great grilling flavor. It's more than a sauce. Whether you're cooking sliders, dogs, steak, or chicken, Deadeye has the explosive flavor needed to make every dish delicious. Try a splash of their sweet and smoky original recipe or turn up the heat with their Magnum Edition barbecue sauce. Both flavors are available in seasonings as well as sauces. So pick your favorite and prepare your taste buds for an unforgettable eating experience. Deadeye Premium Barbecue products are available at Fairway, Hy-Vee, Amazon, or at DeadeyeBBQ.com. Hello, and welcome to Culture Check, Harry Potter, uh, Tailgate Society podcast. Please check the TailgateSociety.com and subscribe to Tailgate Society podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm Arnold Woods. I'm joined by Emily Cornell. Emily, what's going on? You know, just continuing to quarantine and uh, go through all the Harry Potter things. It's been a really good couple of weeks to go through the books and movies again. How are you doing? You welcomed I'm, a new child recently. I did. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to have to wait a while before I do my, my deep dive. I think I've, I know I've told you um, off the air or whatever have you. I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on this podcast or not, but I do a deep dive every two years into Harry Potter land. I reread the series, so I'm trying to hold off on that because oh. I do it at the end of the year. Every two years, I do it around like Christmas break. But this quarantine life, man, it's it's stretching me thin, so I might need to might need to to dive into that sooner. But I do have a, a newborn child to take up my energy at this point, so it's good. It's good over here in the woods household. We're staying above water, I guess you could say. That's always good to hear. Um. And so you're trying to hold off on the Harry Potter deep dive, but you're still like thinking about like the books that you've enjoyed and the parts of the movies and all of that. Um, which like, as I'm thinking about it, I'm always like, Oh, I need to like reread this part in this book. So like props to you for exercising self-control. I appreciate it. You probably did the smart thing though, to reread that. Did you, we're for everyone listening. We're this this episode. We're going to be looking at our favorite Harry Potter books. We're kind of doing a deep dive on them, talking about what we liked about them and what that makes them so special to us, and then also what makes it special in the context of the entire series. So, I did not reread my book yet. Did you completely reread your book and prep for this? I like skimmed it very much in the last couple of days where I'd like read through something that I was like, Oh, I don't remember this, but like parts where I'm like, Oh yes, I remember this vividly. I'm like, ah, yes, this is why I loved reading this book. Um, but I just kept going back and I'm like, Oh, this book is so wonderful. Um, and I can think about as, as I'm reading, as I was reading Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, I'm like, wow. Um, these books are super quick and easy to get through, which was probably good for high school me but they're like so fun and so like fast paced um, that I was like, ah, I might as well just like reread it. And I'm probably going to try to just get through the whole series during quarantine since I'm working from home indefinitely. I really feel you on that in terms of like, I also did like a little bit of a skim, like barely a skim of, of my book. And I'm just like, as I was reading because I'm doing a, a few excerpts from the book. Not a few. I just There's like one little part that I want to read. And my book is Deathly Hallows. But just even like those few pages I'm reading in prep for this, I'm just like, God damn, I love this book. This book is so dope. 
and we'll we'll get into our reasons why for that uh in a little bit but yeah let's 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 really get into it uh you're gonna go first i know that you're gonna kind of explain your book first as you revealed it is harry potter and the goblet of fire so i think we're just gonna do a little bit of a brief overview of each book uh we're gonna go one by one but we're gonna do a little bit of a, a brief overview of the book and then we'll just kind of have a convo about it and I have some questions for you about Goblet. You have some questions for me about Hallows. So why don't you kind of just give us an overview and your thoughts and opinions on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I can do that. Um, and there will be spoilers from both of us, not only for the books that we're talking about, which, I mean, I guess they're like halfway through the series and the end of the series. So there's absolutely spoilers. Um, but... Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is the fourth year at Hogwarts. Um, It starts with Harry, Ron, Hermione. They go to the Quidditch World Cup and they think it's the coolest thing. And they're like, they are introduced to a lot of new characters and just like things in the wizarding world. And of course, as you're reading it, you're like, oh yeah, this seems, this checks out. This is cool. And they go to school very excited about having gone to the World Cup. And then a, another big event happens. It is the Triwizard Tournament. And they there are uh, students from other schools that come and are going to be competitors. And they're just excited to kick back and watch. And then Harry gets sucked into it because Harry gets sucked into any wild thing happening at Hogwarts. Um, because it's always part of some big plan uh, put together by Voldemort. So he competes in the Triwizard Tournament and has to do these three tasks to essentially win. Um, I mean, you pass one task, you go to the next one until finally they're all, all four champions are at the the finish line and it is a maze. And again, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, um, Harry gets to the end of the maze. He gets to the Triwizard Cup. He and Cedric Diggory, a fellow Hogwarts student, touch the cup and they get transported to a graveyard where Harry like gets to see Lord Voldemort's return. He comes back. No one believes him. And that like it really sets it up for the fifth book where pretty much everyone hates Harry and he's moody because he just had a very like traumatic thing occur at the end of the Goblet of Fire watching Cedric Diggory die. And um, none of that is like, what the ending is not my, why it's my favorite book, but um, it's just so fun. Like the following the Triwizard tournament, that's like the biggest part of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So, it's 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 so crazy doing like these brief plot synopsis of these books because I mean Goblet of Fire, what we know about it when it came out, and for me, like I mentioned before, even not reading the book right when it came out, I remember hearing about it and just how big it was. Yeah. Like comparative to the the three that came before it. So just doing these plot synopsis like in this short amount of time for such of both of us picked like two of the longer books. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of crazy. Um, So, yeah, I guess do you what what's my first question for you is generally generally what were kind of if you can think back to when you first read the book, 
what were your reactions to, like, how did the book make you feel, I guess, just in general, after reading it for the first time? I think I was just like really excited while reading it. And that's why when I was like rereading it, I was like, oh, this is such an exciting book. Like it, it really does. It's like the turning point when everything gets really dark. But like, I think that there, the, the Triwizard Tournament, because it's just like this fun, to me, it was like the Olympics, but at Hogwarts. So it was just very fun. And like, oh yeah, she's like introducing this whole new thing that like you never would have heard about in any of the previous books. And here we have it. And it's not some like dark thing. It's this competition between other schools. Like other schools are introduced, other European schools um, are introduced. You get to learn so much more about this world. And um, so I think when I was reading it, I was just like, oh my goodness, this world just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And as a kid who was just like, oh man, where's my Hogwarts letter? Like, oh, Hogwarts isn't the only school. Um, And I think up until like the end where I was like, oh, this took a very hard turn. um, It was just a very exciting and fast paced book. And like, there was just so much happening, but like not so much that like you can't follow the various storylines that are happening. And so, yeah, the first time I read the book, I loved it and it was my favorite one I had read. Like, it's been my favorite since I was a kid when it came out. You mentioned how it like sets up the rest of the series. And one of the things that I think when you say that is how there's really like a clear objective at the end of the book. Yeah. And that objective is, you know, the the defeat of Voldemort. So you have it in the first two books where he's at the end of the first two books, Harry has a confrontation with a form of Voldemort. Mm -hmm. And really at that point, it's just, it's mainly like Harry's survival. That's kind of the end point of both of those books. And then in Prisoner of Azkaban, like we mentioned in the last episode, uh, the serious black reveal and everything like that. And Voldemort himself actually doesn't appear in the book in any way, but his, figure kind of looms over that book as well but you could really say that the those first three books are really really hairy centric and obviously the the entire series is but at the end of the fourth book i think is when you really see the an acknowledgement of the repercussions of voldemort's return beyond just harry and how his return affects people beyond just Harry. Him, him and Harry have this intimate relationship with each other. They have this, um, this traumatic event that binds them together, um, yeah. literally. But at the end of Goblet of Fire, you know, there's that confrontation between Dumbledore and Fudge and everything like that. And then it's kind of the setup of the Order of the Phoenix and everything like that. It really, really expands the worldview beyond yeah. just Harry and Voldemort. Yeah, and like, and and you talked about this on one of the last episodes, like how even the book starts with, um, like the Riddle House, and so and like what happens there, and like, um, the gardener dying, and um, it's just so far outside of like Harry's world, and I think. J.K. Rowling like does a very nice job where she's like, this is going to start happening more. Like little do we know that we're going to start seeing how other things happening in the world will 
eventually impact Harry and you won't see it for a long time. So, um, yeah, Goblet of Fire sets it up for so many different ways. Like, it's not just, oh, the return of Voldemort, but also this the way she's telling the story. It kind of, um, it focuses on other things going on, not just what Harry can see or is experiencing. So my first, the first time I read the book, one of the things that really stood out to me was it's kind of the first real introduction to some serious drama or um, conflict, really. That's the better word. Some really conf- some, it's the first really serious conflict between Harry and Ron. Um, Harry gets his name put in the goblet. He yeah. and Ron had kind of thought briefly about, you know, what they would do if they get selected. And, you know, that's these daydreaming type things because they're underage obviously and so from their point of view there's no way that they can enter and then lo and behold harry gets his name put in the in the goblet and ron is kind of salty about that and bashed harry that night like how he did it and harry's trying to convince ron that it wasn't him and that he doesn't want it even though they had kind of yeah discussed it so what do you what did you think about or what do you think about the harry and ron drama i guess that section of this book yeah. So I think when I read the book originally and I like rereading it in a very different place in life. Um, now I'm like, I get why like Ron is pretty unhappy throughout the book. Like he makes a couple of comments where he's like, you know, he's unhappy that he's poor. Like the Weasleys are poor and like he is envious of Harry, but like, it's hard to be envious of your best friend where you're like, I love this person, but like, they have a lot of the things that like I want and I cannot get that. And I mean, we see this from Ron throughout the whole series where there's like some jealousy and like, I think he does a pretty good job for a, a teenage boy to like, not let it consume him where he's like, I'm jealous of my best friend. Um, so I think originally when I read the conflict, the like when I read it and there was the conflict, I was like, wow, Ron's just like being ridiculous. Um, but right. like rereading it now, I'm like, yeah, like they had talked about it and like often Harry is involved in a lot of things. And like Ron knows in the back of his mind that like Harry's not choosing for any of this to happen. But I think it just like, it was one of those moments where he's just like, like, you did this and he accuses Harry, but is also like, he has to know that Harry didn't do it, but he thought that envy is like speaking in that moment, not necessarily Ron being rational. And I think it's good that they like have that conflict because eventually they were, they had to have it because again, throughout the series, we see Ron like kind of wanting some of the things that Harry gets when he gets the like new broomstick um, when he has just like money and even in like this book. So they go to the um, Quidditch world cup and they like find galleons and Ron hands them to Harry and he's like, Oh, you know, here's this, take it. And Harry didn't notice. So it was leprechaun gold and it disappears. And, Ron's like you knew that it he's like it must be nice that you didn't even notice that like money disappeared and 
Harry was like, there were like a lot of other things going on that night because like that was when like the Death Eaters like were supposedly there and there was the dark mark in the sky. So like Harry's distracted and then he like says to Ron, like I was like, I didn't notice. I wasn't paying attention to like money when my wand was missing. People were like screaming and we thought something bad was happening. Like it wasn't a priority for me. And and I think that like finally we're like Ron has to be like come to terms with, yeah, maybe I am a little jealous of Harry for like various things. And it just comes out in him being like, of course you put your name in the Goblet of Fire um, and figured it out. So it like, it adds to their relationship. I think that they have that conflict and like, they aren't talking to each other and like, fair like again teenage boys i would assume that that's like a fair way they would resolve that not resolve the issue but just like deal with their feelings um considering they're not about to punch each other in the face so yeah, no- notoriously literate people uh notoriously um emotionally literate people yeah 13 year old boys yeah like i think they handle it like as well as they could for like kids like I don't even know if it's like a a teenage boy thing a teenager thing like feel and I again like when I read it I was probably a teenager in like middle school or elementary school like like, I was reading them growing up at an age where I'm like oh like you're just being whiny Ron and like he is but it's valid why he's being kind of whiny you make so many good points um I want to kind of parse through what you said a little bit. Okay. It's I'm like trying to like keep mental notes because you made so many good points. The first one, I guess, is really underrated thing that doesn't get a lot of play. I think when we collectively, like as a culture, discuss these books is the fact that, you know, Harry inherited a fortune from his parents. Yeah. And Ron is poor. And so that's a dynamic that plays out throughout the series. Yeah. And then again, from Harry's perspective, which he explicitly states, like, you know, I got this money because my parents are dead. I would much rather have my parents alive than have this small fortune that I have or whatever. Yeah. But uh, it's something that we've mentioned binge mode on this podcast before. Again, shout out to binge mode. They kind of play it for laughs, but they also do kind of state it throughout starting with Goblet of Fire, like Harry's rich and, you know, please give Ron a little bit more money, Harry. Like you got the money, like help him out. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's a a really interesting dynamic that really comes to the forefront, uh, beginning of this book. And then your point about how jealousy or envy makes people act irrationally and makes, especially, you know, adolescents behave in ways that are out of character. And so when you see Ron, his reaction to Harry being in the his name getting in the goblet, like you said, like he has to know deep down, like Harry didn't want that. And Harry didn't do that. But again, the envy and the jealousy kind of takes control, which is something that Hermione points out to Harry because from Harry's perspective, he's like, this is, you know, people die in this tournament, right? Like, I don't want this. I didn't, it was cool to, you know, picture myself holding the Triwizard Cup and getting the adoration from my classmates and the people in my house or whatever. But, you know, realistically, I don't really want to be fighting dragons, right? I don't want to dive into the lake to save people. Not that he knew that was coming, but he knows that this is a dangerous 
tournament a dangerous thing that he's a part of. He didn't really want it. And so from his perspective, he's like, how could Ron be mad at me for this? And then Hermione kind of has to point out, you know, you're famous and your everything is really centered on you. Kind of almost like a meta commentary a little bit that, yeah. that Hermione gives him where, you know, everything that is happening at the school that's big is revolving around you. And Ron is already in the shadow of his older brothers. He's the youngest boy. He has a brother that works at Gringotts. He has a brother that tames dragons. Two of his brothers were head boy. Um, Percy was a prefect and head boy and all this other stuff. And Ron is kind of the afterthought. And so you compound all that. Plus he has a best friend who's the most, you know, top three famous wizard in the world. Yeah. So he has to deal with that. And the way that he deals with that isn't necessarily in the most mature way. And so it's also interesting, the dynamic of, of Hermione being in between the two. And there are times when Harry is in the middle of Ron and Hermione. Yeah. Which I think that we'll get to a little bit later in this discussion as well. But that's that all that stuff is just really fascinating to me. It's definitely, and like, again, when I first read the books, didn't think much of a lot of the things that happen and a lot of the themes and like, I think themes specifically in Goblet of Fire where it does come up, the socioeconomic stuff. I mean, yet again, throughout the series, it is very <laughs> apparent that the Weasleys don't have a lot of money. But then like when Hermione starts wanting to help the house elves, like you see that come into play where she's like, well, they are magical beings and like, we shouldn't be treating them like slaves. So then it like, it becomes another like social issue that like, in high school, I wasn't thinking about that. But, like, in today's world, I'm like, yeah, like, this is applicable. Like, it's good that kids are, like, reading Harry Potter and kind of understanding these themes at, like, a in a lens that kind of separates them from the issues of the world. But, like, as they become adults and they learn more things, they understand, like, oh, I can tie this into something that, like, or at least for me, I'm like, oh, I like, I get this because I've read that, like, I read this as a kid. This was like a social issue. It's not any less, it's like a bigger issue in the real world. Um, and I have definitely read different things that are like, oh yeah, Harry Potter, kids who read it, they like are a little more empathetic because you see a lot of empathy in Harry Potter. A kid reading it is not like, oh yes, Hermione is practicing empathy in this moment. They're just like, oh, she just really wants to help these house elves. And like, oh, Ron is like really frustrated. And so is Harry. And Hermione's kind of like being the mediator. Oh, she's just being a good friend. Well, she is being a good friend, but she's also like making them understand what's going on with their feelings. A lot of that that you just mentioned in terms of like the subtext of people on different spectrums of the socioeconomic ladder is really and you know this is this is the type of shit that's really up my alley yeah um and it's this is something that's hinted at also in deathly hallows which we'll talk about later obviously but there's a point in deathly hallows where there's a discussion between the main trio of ron harry hermione and then grip hook and there's this this dialogue in terms of grip hook is a goblin and there is a tension between wizards and then other magical creatures mm -hmm. throughout the entire series, but especially in Deathly Hallows. Yeah. 
And Grip Hook is talking about how goblins aren't allowed to have wands. And Ron comes back and it's like, well, goblins can do magic without wands. And Grip Hook is like, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't get to have one. Like, it's a law that we can't have a wand. Yeah. And Hermione is like, well, I'm not pure blood in this climate, so it doesn't really matter. I'm still getting hunted too. And, you know, we're all in this together. And Grip Hook makes the point where he's just like, okay, yeah, but you're still a wizard. And even in this war, wizards get priority. Like you're still going to, as a wizard, even though you're not pure blood, you're still going to come out of this better than me because I'm not a wizard. So like that type of stuff is just really, like he says it explicitly. Yeah. There's a line where he's like, you know, your race is still set above mine. And so little things like that, it, that just really, again, reading it as an adult, those types of social commentary critiques that are embedded in there a little bit, um, it, I those always catch my eye when I read those. They're, I think, like, a big reason why a lot of adults love reading Harry Potter is because there is more to it. It's not just, like, a story of these kids that are trying to, like, save the world. It it does have like a, a deeper commentary happening um, throughout. And like, even from like Voldemort, even if you're just looking at like his, his story and like his death eaters and like the fear that they're putting into people and like um, the Goblet of Fire, you kind of see more of that. You hear about the death eaters, you hear about what they were doing. They were torturing people. They were, um, they would lie and say they were under like someone else's influence and like they wore masks. So you couldn't see who was there again for like that fear. Like you, you walk around in fear. You don't know who's like out to get you. And they, they talk about it like different characters um, like Sirius Black talks about it to Harry, Ron and Hermione. And he's like, well, like we're scared that when he comes back, because you just don't know. And, um, like who's supporting him, who's not supporting him. And like your family could be hurt. And then we see that like play out in the Deathly Hallows. And like, obviously it's not that extreme when you come into modern times, but like, I'm sure plenty of adults who read these books as they were coming out, they're like, yeah, like this is, this can be real life if like the wrong person is in power, if enough people are scared into doing things like fear will make people behave in like irrational ways. And um, oh, so sure. it, does, it like, it does make the books richer because of that. All those things that are going on kind of outside of Harry, Ron and Hermione. Um, yeah. So true. So many good points. God, I love I love talking about this. So many good <laughs> points. You make so many good points. Okay, uh, another question I have for you, and I'll for the sake of time, I'll I'll skip around a little bit. But okay. um, what was your favorite task in the Triwizard Tournament, and why? I think I really liked the um, like when they had to go into the lake and save their most valuable possession, like someone they loved a lot um just because like leading up to that task so harry has the golden egg and he doesn't know what to do <laughs> and all of a sudden he has to go like 
use the the prefect's bathroom and uses their like pool of a bathtub and moaning myrtle makes an appearance (laughs) and i'm just like all right like it's just nice that she's called back from the chamber of secrets like it's not she's not just a character and and this happens with a lot of characters where like you might see them a lot in one book or they might be mentioned in one book but they still come back again um it's not like tv shows where you're like oh this character was like a major part of like this storyline and all of a sudden they've disappeared like no um jk rowling does a very good job of keeping the characters all still part of the story and um so I think leading up to the task of like having to go into the lake and then um, the other things that are at play with that task where like Mad-Eye Moody slash Barty Crouch planted the solution early on and like also was like taking, like he's leading Harry to the solution. Like he's leading the horse to water, but can't make the horse drink the water. And so it's just, like, very funny that he's, like, I left all of these, like, at the end of the book, you find out that Barty Crouch is, like, I left all of these clues for you, and you're just so, like, you're so stupid. He doesn't say it like that. He's just, like, your pride and independence, like, stop you from asking for help. And so Harry's, like, panicking, and then last minute, there's a solution, um, and Dobby also comes back and is, like, here, like, use this. Uh, Use the gillyweed. And so... It's just like fun. It was fun reading how Harry was just trying to brainstorm so many different ways. And like he panics when Hermione and Ron are taken away because, you know, McGonagall wants to see them. And what you don't know when you're first reading it is that they are being taken away to be like put into like a a sleep where they can stand or water. And maybe it's not the most exciting task. Like the dragon is very exciting. The the maze has a lot going on with it, but I think that the, the second task just kind of, it plays such a role, a big role, not because of the task itself, but because of all the other things that go into it. Like Harry having to like work with Cedric and then like all of the, again, Neville has the book with the answer. Dobby goes and gets the gillyweed. Like <laughs> Harry is just, he would not survive without the help of anyone. He cannot do anything alone. And that second task really highlights that. That's very true. And then it also just really highlights his nature. Yeah. Which is his nature is to save people. Yes. And he is supposed to save Ron, but he can't save Ron and then not save Hermione and not save um, Floor's sister. And so it's so, and it's again, like the meta commentary afterwards where um, I don't, it's either Ron or Hermione. It was like, why would you go? Like, do you think that Dumbledore really let one of us like die in there? Like, you're not supposed to like, you're not supposed to play the hero or whatever. And it talks about how he gets like, he's starting to get embarrassed because he's, he should have known better, but like, that's his nature. He's very headstrong. He's very, determined in his nature is to save people so yeah that that task really does a good job of spelling that out in that way so again not like necessarily the most fun because the dragon is so exciting and different and the maze is really cool 
Like the maze is super cool. There's so many different things in the maze that they have to like interact with. Like you see a lot of different things from the magical world. You don't necessarily see that in the lake, but it just, it's a good task. Um, It's my favorite task of the book. So dope. So dope. Okay. So my next question, we've been talking a lot about the mystery aspect of the book and we mentioned that on the last podcast too, a little bit when we talked about um, it was either the last one or the first one we kind of talked about. And I guess you just mentioned it too with, you know, Barty Crouch through Moody setting up these things, these breadcrumbs for Harry to follow. And, you know, this grand plan that Voldemort enacts. So that's like a large part of the book, but also a large part of the book is the teen angst. Yeah. aspect of it which we mentioned a little bit in terms of the harry ron dynamic and then hermione being in between harry and ron and you see it through other characters as well there's a scene where they um are trying to find dates for the yule ball and harry wants to ask cho and cho has already agreed to go with cedric and all of these other things so what do you how do you, can you just what are your thoughts on the the balance of the between the mystery aspects and adventure aspects, the balance between that and then like the more adolescent coming of age aspects of it. I think that like the teen angst that they all have again, first time I read it, didn't think too much about like, I'm just like, yeah, people are just like this. Because I was also a kid. Um, So it was like definitely an adventure mystery. And it's still, there's still so much adventure and mystery in it to me. And I'm like, if there wasn't the teen angst, like they would not be developing as characters. Like there is no way. That's a good point for sure. Yeah. Like you can't read a book about teenagers and like expect them to behave like they're in their 20s or 30s in a very like logical and rational way. Like the book would the books would end after the first book if it, they were behaving like that they'd be like ah yes we're gonna do this this and this and there would be no mess and I think that throughout each book there's like I, I would say book five probably because it's my favorite of the books to just like tear apart because I'm just like ah oh, Harry's so unhappy and he's unhappy for like a very fair reason um but I think through all of the books, like they all have the right amount of angst and a lot of feeling like Harry is noticing Cho and like Ron's noticing Hermione, like Ron notices Hermione for the first time in this book, like very consciously where he's like, oh, you're a girl, like you could be my date to this event. And he starts to feel like the jealousy when she is like, no, I'm going with someone else. Like he's starting to like have those feelings. He just doesn't know how to like verbalize them he doesn't know what to do with them and so those are like some examples of when you're you see the the development of them being teenagers and you need to see that for them to like get through to the the end of the series and you know mature like to see that emotional matured not that there's like a lot of maturity happening but like they you see them progress for sure. And it's also, you see it with them and their classmates. Their classmates get a little bit more 
fully realized in this book as well. Yeah. Through things like the Yule Ball and just, you know, the reaction to to Harry getting his name put in the goblet and, you know, the reaction from Hufflepuff, right? Where he gets, you know, Hufflepuff is salty because they never get any shine. Gryffindor always gets the shine. Yeah. And so, you know, Cedric is a Hufflepuff. He gets selected as the Hogwarts champion. But then also this underage Gryffindor kid does as well. So there's some some blowback in that end. And then obviously the Slytherins jump in on it because they hate Gryffindor. So there's there's a lot of pettiness between the students and a lot of yeah um, a lot of so there's some like light bullying like that type of stuff it's just this is you know they're 14 year olds they're 13 year olds they're 15 year olds this is the stuff that goes on yes and so you add magic into the equation and it's sort of you know that's the that's the lens through which we we see these things but at the end of the day they're all still teenagers so. yeah so they're all and they so they're all behaving like kind of true to how they would behave in like without the magic and like when they I'm sure being separated like most adults they look back when they were in like middle school high school and they're like oh why did any of this actually matter like but in the moment no one can think like that and when you're just a kid full of all of these like hormones and feelings that you don't know you've never had like yeah it's you're you're gonna bully someone like Harry Potter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Last question on this. Okay. Um, what was your initial reaction the first time you read, or the first time that you had read Cedric's death? Like, what was your what was your reaction to that? I was like very surprised and caught off guard by it. Which, like, as I've said, I cannot pick up like the clue like reading through it again i'm like oh yeah like this is foreshadowing for this and this is foreshadowing for this but like i was very surprised i was like oh maybe he it's not like really dead but like he's dead dead and um it was yeah it was just like shock it was a genuine like surprise to me probably not a surprise to most people who can like think through how a story's going but your girl was like, oh, a lot of things are about to happen. For sure. Yeah, like, I did not see it coming. And it's so it's so abrupt. Yes. I guess, I mean, I think I might have, I think I knew that a student died by that time, but I didn't, you know, again, I people had explained the series to me, but the abrupt, quick nature of the way it happens also kind of adds to how shocking it is. And it, it yeah. takes on, I do remember in that moment when it, when it did come out, that that was, that was the talk about it is that a student died. And so that's kind of the signifier that, okay, it's going to go in a, in a more um, serious or more grim direction. Yeah. And I guess because it just like a lot of, I feel like a lot of the deaths that happen it's not that they are like there's like some lead up to it but it doesn't come at you out of nowhere like that one like they literally get there and he dies and there's like no time to even process like you don't even process like what's going on fully yet you're still like oh they it was porky and they got taken to this graveyard and then fairly quickly after that cedric's dead it's a shock to the system 
Yeah. A, a huge shock to the system. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, just because, like, knowing that a student dies, you almost expect it to happen, like, some other way in one of the various tasks. But it was after the task was completed and someone had won. Cedric is the, the casualty of the Dark Lord returning. So sad. Pour it out for Cedric. We miss you, man. Went on to Twilight, though, and, and bigger and better things, I guess. Psych, Twilight sucks. Anyways, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts, I guess, wrapping up our, our Goblet of Fire discussion? Um, I mean, I just think, again, I talked about how it sets it up for a lot of the, the rest of the Wizarding World. Like, well, it sets it up for future books while also giving like a deep dive into the wizarding world you're introduced to the quidditch world cup which has been happening forever um you learn about these new schools you learn more about house elves and uh the spew that hermione comes up with the society for the promotion of elfish welfare like they're like these fun things that just kind of like happen throughout the book you you also get like more of a backstory behind the death eaters the dark mark um, more magic with the port keys, and then Rita Skeeter is a character that's in both the movies and the book. Gets a lot more in the book, and she's like the worst. Like, but Rita her, sucks. She just she's like not a good not a good person to hang out with. No, like she's up there with like Dolores Umbridge, where like they just are bad people. But, like, you're more run-of-the-mill bad people. Like, Voldemort's obviously a bad guy, but, like, he has purpose. He's, like, pursuing power <laughs> and, like, never dying. They're just, like, not nice people. Yeah, um, they're just, like, shitty to be shitty. Yeah, they just are, like, I just want to ruin someone's life today. Um, but Rita Skeeter more with, like, how she's not a registered animagus. Like, something I think about from that book and like other books that doesn't really super get addressed is like, there are probably a lot of unregistered Animagus wizards in this like world that people should be like more worried (laughs) about things happening. Like Sirius Black is, he would become a dog. No one knew. Um, But that's just like a very wild tangent that I was thinking when I was reading and revisiting Rita Skeeter. I don't think we read about any like registered animagus. Like we only read about the unregistered ones. We the only registered one is Professor McGonagall. Yeah, that's true. That's it. <laughs> like she is the only one. Um, and then back to how it's it's setting up for the next book. So like Fred and George talk about a business idea at the beginning of the book, and then at the end of the book, Harry gives them money to start it, and then in book five that we're not going to like actually talk about too much today is they like leave Hogwarts to start the Weasley's wizard wheezes. And like, it becomes like a very fun part of like the final books when things are just very bleak. Um, But those are the, those are the big thoughts from that book that kind of just contribute to me enjoying it a lot. Like nothing's super dark yet, but it's getting there. You know, that, Things are about to change and it's all setting up where I feel that those side storylines that Rowling includes become very important like later in the story. That's a really great moment you mentioned about the the joke shop 
that Fred and George end up creating because of the money that Harry gets them, gives yeah. them from his from his winnings. That's just a great moment at the end yeah. where Harry's like, just take this money. And they're like, no, like at first, like we can't say he's like, I'm not I'm not keeping this money. Like there's no I don't need it. I got it from some really shitty circumstances. Like you take the money. You need it. We're going to he says that, too, where he's like, I have a feeling we're going to need laughs pretty soon. So, yeah, just take it. That's a really great moment. It, it is. And it like we had talked about how like the. The joke shop is like a very bright thing happening that is like definitely needed in how the story progresses. So um, I think just it being presented in this book is while it seems kind of like a an afterthought maybe, or just not that big of a deal that that's how it ends with Harry giving them the money and then them being like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen um, with Voldemort coming back. Like it, it does become one of those like, a very good happy thing comes out of it where the rest, like as the books get darker and darker um, <laughs> and um, kind of speaking of those books getting darker and darker, you had said that your favorite book was the Deathly Hallows. It is yes. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows What's looking, I looked online a little bit and I, I, like googled like top harry potter books and yeah. there's not a lot of them that put deathly hallows at number one for whatever reason it's one of the top books i know it's like it's usually like a top three or four book but it's interesting I was, I was surprised at how few i don't think i saw any of them that put them at number one but it's number one for me just because the style of the book really appeals to me mm-hmm. um i guess i can do should i just do like the the synopsis of it is as briefly yeah. as I can. And then, okay. So yeah. So the book is about, it's the completion. It's the, it's the last book in the series and coming off of the sixth book, Harry and Dumbledore looked into the backstory of Voldemort and how to, um, how he was raised and the things that he valued and things like that. And Dumbledore had this hunch that he had been creating Horcruxes. And so the seventh book is really about the hunts for the Horcruxes. The Horcruxes are these pieces of Voldemort's soul that he has embedded in different items. And the only way to really destroy him fully will be to destroy these Horcruxes. And so Harry embarks on this mission with Ron and Hermione across the English countryside and these different towns in England and everything like that in order to find these horcruxes and also to find a means to destroy them because they can't be destroyed with just ordinary magic. There has to be some sort of super um, extra powerful magic in order to, to destroy these horcruxes. So it begins with, um, there's a prologue with, you know, Snape and Malfoy Manor. And so you get the, you get the vantage point of Voldemort and the people on his side. And then it goes into the people who are fighting against him. Voldemort has effectively by the first, by the end of the first third of the book, Voldemort has killed the minister of magic. 
and has effectively taken control of the government, of the magical government. And so this is this is a heroes on the run book. This is the trio that we have been following since the beginning of the series. And they are on the run. They're being hunted. And they have to use their wits and the things that they've learned the entire series in order to complete this impossible task that Dumbledore has set for them. Dumbledore dies at the end of the sixth book. And so now it's just the three of them using their wits in order to defeat him. And so they have to, again, search for the Horcruxes, search for a way to defeat the Horcruxes, and keep their sanity at the same time and pray that the people that they love don't get killed. And it culminates in Harry figuring out a way to um, destroy some of the Horcruxes. And then the Deathly Hallows aspect of it is these magical items that brings about the owner of the items being able to quote unquote conquer death. And Harry already has one with the invisibility cloak. And we can get deeper into that later, maybe if, if the discussion goes that way, but um, it's really about the, the book really is about um, Harry and his friends and the people he loves going up against an oppressive regime and the final confrontation between Harry and Voldemort and Harry triumphing in the end. So that's my three-minute synopsis, I guess, of, of Deathly Hallows. The long book. A lot happens. It so is like, <laughs> it, it like, it, and it's not bad that it's a long book because everything's being wrapped up. Like, lots of loose ends are kind of finding their end. Um, and it, it is kind of in it's kind of chunked out in what's happening. Like you have them realizing what they need to do, them searching for the Horcruxes and like looking for a way to destroy them. And then Harry realizing what he has to do to kind of close out the, the the conflict with Voldemort. Um, So it's long for like a good reason and it's definitely chunked out. Yeah, well, there's, like you said, there's so many loose ends that need to be tied up. And there are a lot of callbacks to previous books, characters that we haven't seen for a book or two pop up again. Someone like an Umbridge, who is in the fifth book, not really in the sixth book, but then plays uh, a role in the seventh book. There is, um, it's, there's a back, Dumbledore gets more of a backstory in this book. Yeah. Baltimore gets the backstory in the sixth book, and then this book is more of the Dumbledore backstory. And that's a kind of a recurring theme throughout the book is just how little we actually knew, knew about Dumbledore prior to his death. And Harry kind of coming to grips with that, coming to grips with this person who was this father figure slash mentor slash role model who he really looked up to and loved. And then him kind of realizing, first of all, that he wasn't a perfect person. Mm-hmm. And then second of all, that he chose to not divulge a lot of this information to Harry. And Harry kind of has to deal with that and what that means in terms of what their relationship really was. And him working through that is a really powerful part of the book, in my opinion. Do you think that like 
Dumbledore's behavior. Like, so throughout the books, we, we see Dumbledore interacting with Harry and like really serving as like that guide, but like, he still kind of has his flaws. He definitely is very secretive. He doesn't share his motives. He lets things happen that like aren't always great, but like need to happen. Do you think that's like fair that like eventually, and like Snape says this in the, in the seventh book where he's like, you are preparing him to like die basically. Like you're raising this kid to have him die. Um, Do you think that like Dumbledore's behavior is justified and how he has kind of like trained and mentored Harry up until, you know, his own death. And then, um, ultimately Harry has to realize like, oh yeah, like I have to die. And that's why Dumbledore like took such an interest in me. Or do you think that like it, yeah, just like, where do you sit with that? Like in terms of it, is it fair to like think of another person like that? Like, ah, yes. Like ultimately you have to die to protect everyone. Right. Well, that's the question of the book, right? That's kind of the, that's the, existential question i guess i I, i'll answer that i'll answer that question by giving some context and some things that i've i've read about the book and the writing of the book and and jk rowling in terms of her spiritual identity yeah and i i read something where she was like you know she identifies as a christian woman but she really kept that tight-lipped yeah and the reason why she said that she didn't want people to know where the books were going. And so I, I look at the book, I look at that book and ex- especially that book, that book has really um, explicit Christian imagery. Um, there is a Bible verse that's written in um, on one of the, on one of the tombstones in, um, in Godric, Godric's Hollow, it's First Corinthians. I can't remember what the chapter is, but it says the last, uh, the last enemy that shall be defeated is death. And then there is in the, um, there's a, 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 a thing, I, I think it's in maybe Rita Skeeter's book about Dumbledore. And there's a quote where it's like, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And there's a, a part in the book where Harry is like trying to figure out what that means. Like, what does that mean from Dumbledore? Why would Dumbledore write that or whatever? And that is, that's a, that's a quote from Matthew. And it's a quote from Jesus Christ, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's this, there's this explicit like Christian imagery. And as someone who is, uh, is a Christian and who grew up in a Christian household and things like that, um, I, that book really... I, I, the relationship between, and she's spoken about this, J.K. Rowling spoke about this, the relationship between Harry and, and Dumbledore paralleling some relationships between like Jesus Christ and John the Baptist and things like that. My interpretation of it has always been like, and and she's also talked about how she struggles with her faith at times. Yeah. And so my interpretation of it has been the Harry-Dumbledore relationship representing a person's belief in God and going through these horrible life circumstances and these traumatic life circumstances and being like, what well, does God really care about me? Or just, you know, is there a God, those types of things. And so I, I, 
it's it's a it's a tricky question because it, from Dumbledore's perspective, it's he knew that things would work out in the end for Harry because he knows Harry's nature, like we kind of talked about earlier. He knew that Harry would do this impossible task. He knew that Harry would be willing to sacrifice himself in order to save his friends, his family in the in the Wizarding World, but he doesn't tell him. And so you you look at a person's faith, I guess, and these crazy life circumstances that happen, and you know, will will it work out in the end? Will it work out in the end? Will it not? And maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. And so, like that's that's kind of the way that I've always interpreted that relationship in terms of the last book. Was he justified or not? I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that or not. Honestly. I, I, Dumbledore is a very um, calculating character who puts all these machinations in place in order to execute these plans. And he keeps so much of it close to the vest. And I think I, I would probably lean more towards Harry's perspective to be like, why couldn't you have t- t- told me some of this? There's, there's information that he withholds from Harry that, in my opinion, is... Um, unnecessarily withheld. And Harry has to deal with that. And again, it works out for him because Dumbledore knows his nature. But I, I certainly identify with um, Harry in terms of wanting more information than than what he got initially. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought up like the J.K. Rowling's faith and like um, the Christianity piece of this. Um because I did not, I think at any time when I've read these, and I was going to ask, like, do you think that it's a fair comparison when people are like, they compare Harry Potter to Jesus Christ in terms of, and that's why people are very unhappy with, like, the people who are unhappy with these books. They're unhappy because they're like, well, they've made Harry Potter into being like some savior for everyone. And then J.K. Rowling came out and was like, no, but like, I'm Christian. <laughs> um, right, and, yeah. and so, but then I was like, oh no, like, that's just like a small segment that like kind of relates this back into like religion somewhat. Um, so, I, don't, I mean, do you think that it's fair when people like make that comparison of how she wrote Harry and if if it like is leaning towards that where like he is like a quote-unquote savior or it's just like part of the story because he's the final horcrux yeah i think that it's more just her like leaning into it i think that again like because there i've i've read criticisms where it's like you know harry is jesus and then dumbledore is god or harry is jesus and dumbledore is john the baptist and i think that it's more um I think I think that Harry represents a person's belief in God from yeah. from her perspective. And there are yeah. people who there are people who aren't Christian or who aren't spiritual or religious at all, and they interpret it a completely different way, which is fine. Yeah. Um my my reading of it is just that he he's he's representative of a person trying to understand why these things in life are happening to him in the way that they're happening, knowing that there are people out there who that there's someone out there in the in the form of Dumbledore who loves him and who cares about him and who is, you know, the most powerful, you know, wizard or whatever. 
I, you know, the, the criticisms, I, I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's more literary than, than literal, I guess. It's more like allegorical than yeah. literal. And it's a person really dealing with internally their belief system and how that affects their, not only their daily life, in, in, in Harry's terms, how it affects them completing these seemingly impossible tasks that they are tasked to complete. I think that's fair. I think, again, I had not, I was like, ah, I don't even know if people still think about it this way because she was like, no, I'm Christian. And um, I kind of like the, the spirituality piece of it had kind of gotten pushed to the back of my mind. And I'm like, Oh no, maybe that's not really what people are thinking of these books anymore, but. It's just, it, it's just, yeah. Like it's, it's really, I think maybe the second or third time I read it, it really, the last book specifically, like there's just so many, like there's so much religious imagery, not just yeah. like, so I already explained like the Bible verses and then, you know, he draws a cross on Dobby's grave and like there's there's just so much religious imagery and then obviously you know at the end he like sacrifices himself and returns not from like the dead but you know from this like spiritual limbo it's just I just thought that was really she really leans into the Christian imagery in the last book in a way that she doesn't in the earlier books that's only like hinted at maybe a little bit in the earlier books like the last book i'm just like wow like she really kind of dives headfirst into it so i mean when you're quoting the sermon on the mount i mean it's pretty that's pretty explicit i guess yeah do you think that she did that i mean obviously she does a lot of things very much intentionally like there's purpose behind everything in these books we can see it from book one to the end of book seven she's a planner she's very intentional in like what's what's going on but do you think that like she just as she was writing them because when she wrote the first book she was like not in a great place like she had gotten divorced she had no money she wrote the book from a coffee shop um do you think that like as she was writing the books because she doesn't like lean into any of that um christian imagery in the beginning it's kind of like an an evolution of like where she sits with it by the end? Or do you think that she was just like, I'm just going to not include any of this until the last book so that people don't think that these are like the next um, Chronicles of Narnia? You know, I I would guess that it is. I would guess that it's more the former where she is, you know, she, she's talked about how she lost her mother, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And how that affected her when she started writing the book. And like, that's one of the reasons she started writing the book about this, you know, orphaned boy. And I would guess that, yeah, it's kind of an evolution of where she, where she sat, where she sat in terms of her, her faith. And I don't mean that in a sense that, you know, Harry comes back and, you know, he defeats Voldemort. And so now it's all good. Like she never, she doesn't have any doubts anymore about her faith. I don't think that, I don't think that's it at all. I just, I do think that it, it was a journey of self-discovery and then coming to grips with some things within herself and, you know, the world around her. She's talked about how one of the themes of all of the books that certainly plays out in the last one is the inevitability of evil. 
in the world and like how we have to keep fighting against it, knowing that it'll always be there, but we still fight against it. So I I think that all of those things um, sort of play into that in terms of the last book. And then also her, her knowledge and her understanding and grasp of classical literature yeah beyond just beyond just the religious literature which goes back thousands of years but also the classical literature that goes back thousands of years i have this in the outline but i think about like oedipus rex and how um oedipus rex is by god sorry uh sophocles i think i read this shout out to um my senior year ap lit um so Oedipus Rex is like, you know, it's about a guy who tries to, there's a prophecy. He gets a prophecy from the gods, you know, Greek literature, yeah. that he, his son will kill his father, him, and then marry his mother. And so to prevent that from happening, he, you know, he tries to hire someone to kill the, the baby when he's born. And that person doesn't do it. And so he ends up taking the the child to a faraway land. And eventually he grows old. And then the child and him meet on a road one day and they don't recognize each other. And the old man pisses off the younger boy and the boy kills him so that, you know, the, the prophecy is fulfilled. Right. Yeah. And so there's this idea of a person trying to prevent their destruction and in trying to prevent their destruction, they create the means through which they're destroyed. And that's what it is with Voldemort and Harry. There's this prophecy and Voldemort tries to keep the prophecy from happening. And this is really outlined in the sixth book, but Dumbledore is like, he tried to keep you from killing him. So he tries to kill you, but through that he create, he gives you unique tools that will allow you to kill him, right? Like you can speak to snakes because he can speak to snakes. You have a psychic link between the two of you. You killed his parent or he killed your parents. So there's this drive within you to kill him, right? Like, so in trying to keep the prophecy from happening, he makes it happen. And so like, that's really what the entire series is about that kind of culminates and comes to a head in this last book. So it's, it's the classical literature. It's the religious literature. It's kind of, I think that, both of those things are really integrated into the series and, and really come to their apex uh, in Deathly Hallows. Yeah. That's like a really good point. Um, I'm going to be very honest. I've read no classical literature. Uh, I opted out of that in high school. I was like, I'll take another writing class. I don't think I can <laughs> read this. Um, we had two. We had two. And I remember Oedipus Rex and then Medea, those two. So my... Uh, Miss Brooks, if you're listening to this, which I know you're not, um, some of that material still permeated, and I remember it. But um, I'm I'm glad that you drew that comparison and like brought that in because again, uh, I think it goes back to why adults enjoy Harry Potter as much as kids, and it's not necessarily the story of Harry Potter. <laughs> it's all of these like underlying things and um, the fact that she does kind of bring in classical literature in this, it like, to me, it makes the story a lot richer. 
um, that there's just like more behind it than her being like, I thought of a story about a boy. <laughs> I like have applied all of this knowledge in like how a story can like form and like she was not careless with the story of like Voldemort and like how Voldemort and Harry come together and that like ultimately Voldemort trying to um stop Harry from destroying him destroys him so um in that making him a horcrux do you think that of all of the horcruxes that Voldemort makes Harry is like the most like dangerous one that he's made or like do you think that there's another one that's like more dangerous to Voldemort like in his pursuit to avoid death I think that ultimately I mean in terms of Voldemort himself certainly Harry is the one that brings about his demise the quickest yeah excuse me um I, I I do think about the locket though and the way that the locket um, manifested itself between Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and how it it, it changed their mood when they wore it. Yeah. And um, the locket is the first one that they that they get together. They thought that they had gotten the locket at the end of the sixth book, Dumbledore and Harry, but it was a fake, uh, planted by Regulus Black, Sirius's brother. And so they have to find the locket. And when they find the locket, um, they, again, they break into, um, into the ministry because Umbridge has it. And they get the locket and it's the first one that they get. And so there's this sense of relief and, you know, they're coming off this adrenaline high, but then they're like, okay, well, how do we destroy it? And they try to use spells on it or whatever and like nothing works. And so the dread that comes with it the dread of we found a Horcrux, but now we can't destroy it. And we found a Horcrux, but we have no idea or no leads on any of the others. And so all of these things are happening. And then when they put on the locket, it changes, you know, it, it has an effect on them mentally. And that's something that I've, I really am, am drawn to a lot uh, in terms of how, you know, it's, it's really explicitly, laid out between Harry and Voldemort and their psychic connection, mm-hmm. which is really first set up um, in Goblet of Fire in the beginning where Harry, you know, has the vision of Frank Bryce being killed at the beginning of the book. But that really comes out to the forefront in the next few books. And then in here, like it, it's not just Harry who's mentally dealing with these, with these anxieties. Now Ron is too. Now Hermione is too. So the locket affecting all of their moods and then Ron comes back from leaving them and he eventually destroys the locket but before he does he has these visions he has these and this is this is something that's really good in, in the movie in the movie it's it's similar to the book but he has this vision of not just so there's the vision of you know Harry's um just like apparition of Harry telling Ron that his mom preferred him to, to Ron and, you know, Hermione's like, really, I, I prefer him to you. And then they kiss and everything like that. But then also in the movie, it's it, that, that stuff happens, but then there's the spiders kind of crawl towards him. Yeah. And so it's like, I thought that was just a really good touch that the movie does where it's just like all of his fears, right? Like we know mm-hmm. that Ron is afraid of spiders. 
And I don't think that that little detail is in the book, but it's the way that they do that in the movie. I thought was really dope. It's like all of his fears, all of his insecurities are projected in this real life quote unquote form. And so, yeah, the locket I think is really uh, one of the more interesting horcruxes in that it, it really gets into the psyche of a person and what makes them tick and what they're afraid of and what their the jealousies that they have and the, you know, the possessiveness that they have, all the, all of your bad traits are kind of amplified through the, through the locket, which makes it pretty dangerous to me. Yeah. It's definitely, it's to me a very interesting Horcrux because of all of the things you mentioned. And it's just like, I wonder if like Voldemort was just like, it, it was like a trophy. So of course he turned it into a, um, Horcrux, but like just the the effect it has because all of the Horcruxes seem to have like negative effects when people interact with it, like which we see like in book two with ta- like his diary, how it like manipulates Ginny. That's a really good point. And I guess they don't interact with the other Horcruxes long enough to see how they can be as dangerous. Um. Just because, yeah. no, go ahead. I don't know. Just like the the cup and the the like crown, like no one's wearing those. No one's like interacting with it long enough for it to drain them. But like with the locket, like they do take it with them, and each of them get um, experience the negative side effects of it. Yeah, I, I think that it's interesting. With there's the locket and like the mental aspect of it, and then there's like things like the cup. Yeah. where it's, you know, it's the physical, where it keeps multiplying and then burning and things like that, burning your skin. So he, you know, Voldemort really put into place these sinister protections on the Horcruxes that kind of manifest itself in, in different ways. He definitely, he tried to plan it out. He's like, if I'm going down, it's not one specific way people are going to figure it out. Exactly. So let's look at, I guess, some other thoughts that I had on the book. Um, really, I like that it's a war book and it kind of shows the toll and like the effect that war has on people. Um, kind of beginning with the the first chapter where it's like Snape and Yaxley and they're walking into Malfoy Manor and, you know, they're on the front lines with Voldemort. They're in his inner circle but they're, you know, they're paranoid and they're on edge just like everyone else is. Mm-hmm. And that, that opening scene, you sort of see the people in Voldemort's inner circle and the way that they're kind of jockeying for position and the way that Voldemort uses, he like weaponizes praise and humiliation at the same time mm-hmm. uh, between people. Um, you know, he kind of really, you know, he's, he's taken Malfoy Manor as his own. And, you know, the Malfoy family who throughout the entire series have been this, you know, you know, rich, posh, um, kind of, you know, arrogant family are just reduced to nothing, basically. They're prisoners in their own home and they're, they have all this anxiety and they're just praying that they don't get killed and all this other stuff. So, 
but that's, you know, in war, people are, you know, they're afraid, they're paranoid, they're fatigued. Um, that's the effect that war has on people. And then also war brings out bravery from people and people being motivated to fight. And, you know, um, I think the book does a really good job of, of showing that. And then in terms of Harry himself, Harry, um, Harry's defeat of Voldemort is just really on brand for him because he doesn't, he doesn't overpower Voldemort. That's not the point. The point isn't that he, cause there's so many people who are like, you're not a match for him magically, you know? And he's like, yeah. of course I'm not. And the book is like, of course he's not, but Harry like outthinks him and he outplans him. And it's really Voldemort not valuing certain things that leads to his downfall. Yeah. He's not valuing certain things that Harry values. And that's what leads to him being destroyed. And so we mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts about how both Harry and Voldemort are planners. And, you know, Harry gets the best of Voldemort by being the better planner. And he has a better, um, a more deeper, thorough knowledge of magic and, and wand lore. And there's this part towards the end where he meets with Ollivander, where he realizes that Voldemort is going after the Elder, Elder Wand, but he needs more info on the Elder Wand. And the way that his wand interacts with Voldemort's because they both have the twin cores and, you know, Harry realizes that Voldemort's trying to get a more powerful wand. Like, everything that Harry does, like, Harry's a master tactician. Yeah. And he is... There's a moment where they're listening to that underground radio broadcast. And um, there's a moment where Lupin is on the broadcast under a code name. They're all under code names. And Lupin is like, Harry needs to trust his instinct. Like my message to Harry, if they, if they have any message, I think it's Lee Jordan and, you know, Fred and George are, are yeah. And they're like, they asked Lupin, do you have a message for Harry if he's listening? And Lupin is like, my message to Harry is to trust his instincts because they're very good and they're almost always right. So Harry, like, trusts his instincts in this, in this book. And it's, 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 he's just, he's so good at planning things and he's so good at solving problems. And to me, like, that moment is just, it's, it's a marriage of Harry's, like, his superior instinct and then his mastery of, of tactics during the war. And that didn't just happen. It's a result of everything that he's been through in his life to this point. And so I, I draw the parallels, like, if you're playing a video game and at the end of the video game, you might have to get this. There's a level where you may have to get this special object that'll allow you to defeat the big boss or the special new ability, the special new suit of armor or whatever it is. Yeah. And like, it's not like that with Harry. He's, he's using skills that he's used and developed. He's drawing on these skills that he's developed the entire series. And that's come through success and failure. That's come through life experiences. But all of those things culminate in his ultimate victory against Voldemort. And that's one of the reasons I really love it. It definitely that I get that um, because otherwise, like if it, it sounds bad, but like if he was not drawing upon those like past experiences, it's like why did you have all these six books leading up to this for him to just like find something new that like completely comes outside of like 
that would be so far off what we've been learning throughout the entire series, basically. It is like the it's the Horcruxes aren't he's not getting the Horcruxes to make himself more powerful to be Voldemort. Yeah, he's trying to he's trying to strip Voldemort of power. Yeah, and he's using his wits and the information he's learned about Voldemort in order to do that. So it's not him like trying to. It's not about learning new magical techniques. It's not about him. You know, there's not a training montage where him and Hermione and Ron are like dueling each other in order to get better at that. Like it's 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 more about understanding your opponent, understanding his weaknesses, and using what you've learned. Um, you know, academically, mentally, emotionally, like using all of those things in order to be him. So it's really dope to me. Yeah. And it's, I think the middle of the book kind of drags, but is needed because like it's building up to this ending. Right. And um, like it make I get why this would be like a favorite book. It's interesting, like you said earlier, that like it's not typically people's favorite book of the series, but like what you've pointed out, like just really highlights all of the good things about the series, like about like what they've learned and how they're applying it. Like they don't need some like random thing to solve the problem. They just like use what they have and what they've like already learned. Um and they're not trying to like even do what Voldemort's doing to beat him. They're right. like, no, like we know that this will work by doing it this way. We don't need to like compromise like our values in order to like achieve the greater good. That's a really good point. And also that kind of comes up with in the beginning with Scriminger and how he's trying to use Harry like as a propaganda machine kind of yeah. and trying to, to win the war that way. And Harry's like, no, nah, I'm not really about that. And the way that Ron and Hermione stick by him in that way, when he is, when Scrimmager is kind of dispensing with Dumbledore's will and giving them these tools and Hermione pointing out like that they should have gotten them months ago, but, you know, the government was trying to vet them to see if there is any like special things, special weapons that Dumbledore is passing on to him, like that type of thing. Like that whole sequence is about the difference between the trio's techniques of fighting this war versus the government's techniques in which it's better. So. Do you think that those like items that Dumbledore leaves, like, do you think that it fits like Dumbledore is like thoughtful in those gifts and like could have even predicted like how the story is going to go for them? Or he just was like, I have a rough idea. This might be useful. It kind of makes me think about like how much he was watching them as a trio yeah. versus him just watching Harry's development, because that's really the, the main theme is Dumbledore watching over Harry and helping him and having this helping hand. But what he gives to Ron and Hermione really suggests that he was watching the three of them as a unit as well. And he had to have known their natures and their personalities and their, you know, styles of using magic or whatever in order to really give them those gifts. Like the Deluminator 
which is such a cool thing. Not just, you know, taking the lights out, but also the the voice aspect and being Ron being able to follow them. And there's the thing where Ron comes back after leaving, where Ron tells Harry, you know, Dumbledore must have known that I would leave. And Harry's like, no, he must have known that you would want to come back. So that type of thing, like Dumbledore knowing their personalities more than even they realized, right? Because Ron, when they're meeting with Scrimmager, Scrimmager asks him, you know, would you say that you were particularly close? And Ron's like, I don't think I ever really said much to him at all. And Hermione's like, no, you know, chill, man. Like he's trying to, he's trying to get that out of you. But yeah, but like Dumbledore knew them. He knew that Hermione would find the stuff about the Hallows in the Tales of Beetle the Bard. He knew that Hermione would value um, not trying to get the Elder Wand versus um, trying to go after it, which was the which was the right choice. Like Hermione would value getting the Horcruxes instead, which is a a, a decision that Harry makes himself. So yeah, I, I just think that those those gifts are really it's a symbol of Dumbledore observing them as a trio and as a unit and knowing what their strengths are and the way that they interact with each other. Um, which really, you don't really get any of that until that moment at the end. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, I think in the beginning when he gives the gifts, like what, what did you think when you had read that? Like, again, you were like familiar with like the story before you read the book, but like still when you were reading it, um, and you're like, oh, these are just like kind of common items. Not common, but like there's nothing particularly special about them I in think that for, moment. Yeah, I think a few things. I think I, I, you know, I was so caught up in everything. I think that I knew that they would come into play later in the story. Just yeah. not how. I had no idea how. But then also I think, you know, I, I was thinking how on brand it was for him, for Dumbledore to give them these these things that, are seemingly um, unimportant or benign, but would have these, they would be really powerful tools in a way that they don't really present themselves as initially. I think that you know, reading it for the first time, uh, it's, it's a moment that you know is going to be important. Like yeah. there's this whole scene of this, of this will being given to them. You could tell that, you could tell that that was an important moment. Yeah. And you might not know how important it would be or the way that it would come into play later, but I think I, I remember it It seeming like a really important moment. And then, like, so much else happens, like we've been saying, like, it's such a long book. You know, maybe 200 pages after that, you're not really thinking about it anymore, but it's when it when it comes into play later in the book, you your mind goes back to that moment and you realize, you know, you know, when Ron comes back and he, he explains yeah. to Harry how the Illuminator works. Right. And then you're like, wow. Okay. Dumbledore really knew what he was doing. Yeah. And the, I think I think about the Illuminator and I'm like, Oh, like we saw it for the first time in the first book. Like we're introduced to it and we know Opening that it's scene like, almost. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. In the beginning. It's just like, Oh, it turns off lights. <laughs> if you don't want to be seen or, you know, it brings the light back. So I think it was like very anticlimactic when Ron gets it at the beginning right. of that book where I'm like, oh, like all this does is turn lights on. The other things I'm like, oh yeah, this will like come into play later. But like that one specifically, that's why I was like, oh, I wonder what you thought of it because you 
think about the book holistically. I think. I, I think that it's like, it's an example of her ability, JK Rowling's ability to call back to these things that again, like throwaway things. Yeah. In, in the, in the deathly hallows or in the uh, goblet of fire discussion, right. In the beginning, they take a port key to the Quidditch world cup. Yep. And to me, it's like, that's like a throwaway thing, right? Like that's, I'm pretty sure that's the first time the port keys had been introduced Yep. and they explain what they are and it makes sense, right? You have to, you don't want everyone apparating all at once and, you know, it's a big event. And so you use these port keys that have schedules and things like that. And it's, you know, okay, cool. You know, every book, there's these new magical items or abilities that are introduced. So it's, you know, that's what you're thinking it is. And then lo and behold, at the end, they touch the cup and the cup is a port key. Mm-hmm. So like those types of like things that are seemingly like throwaway things, they come back to have these crazy significance later on. She's just really, really good at that. She is. And that's like, I think throughout Deathly Hallows, like she brings back different things like that. And the Deluminaire being like the big thing I'm thinking of, but like um, she for sure just like revisits so many things that like you've learned about through all of the books. Um, She recycles it. And I like that. I like that she doesn't try to introduce all these new things to like, have the conclusion um everything you you've heard of from that it's been building on itself for the last six books and like I know that that is like the purpose of a series is for things to build on it but um she just does it where like the world is just its own thing and it's just so cool and oh such good books (laughs) really in depth I love all of them yeah they I love all of them so much do, do you think that the 19 years later at the end of the Deathly Hallows was like necessary? And like, just how do you feel about it in general? I, I don't know. You know, I liked it when I first read it. It's to say, I don't know, necessary, probably not necessary, but I, I get why she did it. It makes me think of, uh, do you watch Parks and Rec? Yeah. So like the series finale of Parks and Rec where they're kind of like that, like that really had me like completely in my feelings the first time I saw that. I don't think I've watched it since, but like the series finale is like a 19 years later type thing. Yeah. Where you you kind of check in on all of them years after this time period that we've got to know them and see them grow and have these relationships with each other. And so I don't know, and that aspect of it is cool but then you kind of like negate it when you do something like the cursed child, which, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's her story. She has the right to add to it as much as she wants. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel it's not to be callous, but I don't really care about their children. You know what I mean? Like I care about them. Yeah. I don't really care about Scorpius Malfoy or, you know, Albus Severus Potter. I care about Harry, Ron and Hermione. Yeah. and Jenny and you know Luna and Neville and all those other people so I yeah. don't know what did you think about it um I don't love it um because I when I finish a book I'm like ah oh, this is like the end of this story and like I get why she did it just so that it's like no we're done it's over it's we're out like I get why but I'm also like I don't I don't want to 
think about this than 20 years later, like, oh, they have kids. Like, yes, that's typically how life progresses. (laughs) Um, Like, I don't know. Um, Like, it's good. So then it's just like, there is, it's like tied up. It's a neat bow at the end of things. But I think that's, the book is so good until that where I'm like, ah, like I didn't need this for this book. Like this book is like, it it does have a resolution. I don't need this added resolution, but um, I know some people love it. Some people hate it. Just wondering about that. Um, And I do have a question that like, we didn't talk about this um, because it really didn't fit in with anything, but um, the Snape storyline with like Lily Potter um, like, do you have any like particular feelings about that when you first like read the books? Did you feel like that was going to be like, we see in earlier books that like Snape obviously hates Harry yeah, because of James. Yeah. So like that, like Lily Potter part of the story, like, where do you sit with that? Do you feel like, I don't know. I'm glad you asked this. Cause I have, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Okay, I have a lot of good. thoughts on Snape as a character, and I oh, again we've been we're running long, so I'm gonna I'm I'm going to put this as succinctly as I can. But um, your first question: What did I think when reading that? I thought that it was an effective resolution to his story. I guess. Okay. Um, I thought I thought I thought the function of it worked. Um in terms of why Dumbledore would trust him. That is the context in which I understand why it would work. Um, Snape is a really divisive character, but I feel like Snape has more people who love him than hate him. And that, you know, that's, I don't, I don't mean to make it a binary, a binary like that, but to me, Snape, it, you know, Secretly, he loved Lily the whole time. Okay, you know that's I it's, again. It's 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 an effective device to to show why Dumbledore always had trust in him. To me, it doesn't excuse the way he treated people like shit. To me, yeah, treating a treating a, an eleven year old boy who lost both of his parents like trash, and you're his teacher, right? You're in an authority position above this child. This 11-year-old child and the disdain you show for, his, for this child because his, you had feelings for his mother and he, you know, she picked a guy that you didn't like instead of, instead of you. And so you choose to treat this child like shit because you didn't like his dad. I'm not excusing what his dad did. His dad almost got him killed. There's a lot of bad blood between them. I yeah. understand that. But this child is completely innocent and you're his teacher. And like, that's like, I've never, that's, I've never gotten down with that. I, that does not excuse the way that he treated not just Harry, but Harry's friends and Gryffindors in general. That's just really petty, insecure, irresponsible. Like you're a teacher and you're, you're taking out your anger at a, an orphaned child's father on him who you've never met before who didn't show you any type of disrespect until you disrespected him first like i just i never got down with that so those are my thoughts on that 
not team Snape. Not at all. No. (laughs) Um, No. I feel like most people don't, that I've talked to, nobody is like pointing out all the very obvious flaws you just pointed out um, with Snape. And like, I'm thinking about this question. I'm just like, oh yeah, like Lily and Snape. It was like a story that I'm just like, oh, well, okay. I still don't understand. Like you would think that because he loved Lily, he'd want to be like kind to Harry. But like, I don't, I don't know. So it's always just like an interesting, it doesn't super tie into like anything else that we talked about with this story, but it's like a big part of um, the story because Harry and Snape have that very awful relationship through every book. So had to ask. I'm very glad you, glad you shared. Um, no, I'm glad you, you did ask into, Like you put it in perspective that I think people don't think about when they're just like, oh, it's just so great that like Snape was in love with Lily and it's like Snape abused a child. Right. Like that doesn't excuse like, I think that people use that as a blanket to excuse his behavior for the entirety of the series. I'm not saying he's not a brave person. I'm not saying that he didn't fulfill his role in beating Voldemort. I'm not saying that he was unnecessary to beating Voldemort because obviously he played a very pivotal role. But my issue is the way that you treat people when you're in, a, in an authority position above uh, over them and you're their teacher and, you know, to, I don't know. Like, imagine, like, how would you feel if someone treated your son like shit because, you know, they had a crush on you and you didn't reciprocate it and they married someone else? Fans. I'm saying, like, come on, man. Like, this is not, like, I don't know. I don't vibe with that at all. I don't really vibe with Snape. No, that's just my opinion. That's, that's very fair. And I think that more people need to, like, think about it like that because they're very quick to, I mean, like, obviously in the beginning, everyone's like, Snape is a bad guy. And then Snape turns out to be not a totally bad guy, but they're like, oh, well, like, he tried to, like, help save Harry and all this, but, like, Harry is between the ages of 11 and 16 when he's, like, actively interacting with Snape, like, every day. And, like, that would be awful to have, like, an adult just treating a kid like that. Right. Um, And I get that, like, people, like, the wizarding world, like, things are happening where, like, people are not always being great to each other. Like, you see that with, like, Mad-Eye Moody being just, like, nuts when he turns Malfoy into a ferret. But, like, there's still, like, that human piece that you're seeing through every other interaction throughout the series that you're like, ah, Snape is really being terrible, it's just not a good look for him no. through the entire series. It's really no. not. No. And I agree with you. Like, no one is perfect. I'm not saying that anyone is a perfectly good or bad person in these books. I think that, you know, she did a really good job of giving people dimensions and layers and stuff. And, and yeah. certainly Snape is a, is a very layered character. But, you know, it's, I'm just, you don't treat people like shit because you're mad that they're, you had a crush on their mom and she didn't, she married someone else. Yeah, no. Like that's Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Um, <laughs> but do you have any final thoughts on the Deathly Hallows? Yeah, just um, I my final thoughts would just be I think that it just it, it appeals to me. I'm I'm really big on like long journey type stories. Um, my favorite Lord of the Rings movie is the second one, uh, Two Towers. Like I just love that. Like it's a 
they're obviously all of those movies are them journeying. And I haven't read the books. I haven't read those books. I know people are really into the books. I haven't read them. I've only seen the movies, but like just these, this long, dangerous, epic journey that you have to take. And then it culminates in this battle. Like, I just really love stuff like that. And I love the, um, the character moments between them when they're, you know, when they're wandering and they're going from place to place, like it's just a great book. And the callbacks again, um, everyone is, um, all of Harry's significant relationships are tested in that book. The Harry Dumbledore relationship, the Harry Ron relationship, the Harry Hermione relationship, the Harry Lupin relationship, um, where he kind of yells at Lupin and like, they come to a head, you know, all of these relationships that he has are really tested in that book. And I just love it a lot. For good reason. It's a good book. So much happens. So many, so much development. It's yeah. So good. Fantastic. This was so fun. This was super fun. (laughs) It's incredible to talk about this with you. I'm a, I'm I'm a big fan. Big, big fan. Yeah. Same. It's like, I love talking about it. I love other people like geeking out about like all of the, the other pieces to Harry Potter as we've talked about. So this was, this is real. This is fun. We'll be talking about more Harry Potter stuff soon. For sure. Um, I think our next episode, we're going to have a conversation about the side characters. Maybe we'll give our top couple, you know, five, three side characters. Maybe we'll just talk about them. I don't know yet. We'll, we'll see what happens, but I'm looking forward to that. I am too. Thank you all for listening. Um, hope you enjoyed hearing about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. We will see you next time. Thank you, guys.